This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A Dirty South Manifesto, Sexual Resistance and Imagination in the New South by L.H. Stallings. From the shutdown of Planned Parenthood clinics and rising rates of HIV to opposition to marriage equality and bathroom bills, the New South is the epicenter of the new sex wars. Antagonism toward reproductive freedom, partner rights, and transgender rights has revealed a new and unacknowledged era of Southern Reconstruction centered on gender and sexuality. In A Dirty South Manifesto, L.H. Stallings celebrates the roots of radical sexual resistance in the New South, a movement that is anti-racist, decolonial, and transnational. For people within economically disenfranchised segments of society, those in sexually marginalized communities, and the racially oppressed, the South has been a sexual dystopia. Throughout this book, Stallings delivers hard-hitting manifestos for the new sex wars. With her focus on contemporary black Southern life, Stallings offers an invitation to anyone who has ever imagined a way of living beyond white supremacist heteropatriarchy. A Dirty South Manifesto, Sexual Resistance and Imagination in the New South, by L.H. Stallings. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We are all very focused on the presidential race, and for good reason. Bernie Sanders has a good chance of winning it all. It's a historic opportunity for the left here in the U.S., and because we sit at the top of such a nasty world system for the left everywhere as well. But, as Bernie always emphasizes, he can't do a Green New Deal or Medicare for All or rebuild the labor movement on his own. Far from it. We need the sort of mass movements that are only just now emerging in embryonic form with the teacher strikes. And he also needs allies to win down-ballot races, very much including in Congress, where Republicans control the Senate and most Democrats remain in thrall to a status quo that, if left unchecked, will bring about climate catastrophe and the continued immiseration of people everywhere. We need a better Congress, and we need to start electing it now. We also need to build power on the state level, where government can do a lot, a lot of good and a lot of bad, regardless of what's happening in Washington. That's what this episode is about. Today, I have three interviews with Jessica Cisneros, a justice Democrat running against incumbent conservative Democrat Henry Cuellar in Texas's 28th Congressional District, Stephen Smith, who is running a populist campaign to win the Democratic primary for governor of West Virginia, on the political agenda put forward by the state's massive teacher strike, 
and Heidi Sloan, a DSA candidate in the Democratic primary for Texas's Republican-held 25th Congressional District. If and when Sanders wins the presidency, historians will record the endorsements made by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib as critical turning points in a campaign that was in a moment of crisis. They were endorsements that came at the very moment when Bernie most needed them. And now, Bernie is surging. None of these left-wing congresswomen were in office last year. Under a Sanders presidency, they will be his core allies in the House. We knew that electing these three would be a big deal, but we could not foresee the critical role that they would be playing right now. In other words, my point is, these sorts of races matter a lot, including in ways that we can only understand after the fact. But, of course, we've got to build movements too. People are often rightly skeptical of electoral politics, and one big question facing left-wing organizers everywhere across the U.S. is not only how to balance the presidential campaign with other races, but how to balance electoral work with organizing for tenant rights, union power, and energy justice, or whatever it is you're working on. I think the work that Austin DSA and Heidi Sloan are doing right now in Texas, running a massive canvas that builds organizational and political capacity for the long haul, is exemplary of how to put this all together. Anyhow, I need to break this fourth wall and speak directly to you, the person walking around with me snugly ensconced in their ears, and ask you to support this podcast at Patreon dot com slash the dig. We keep the dig up and running and free and available to all regardless of their ability to pay because those of you with the means to support us do so. Even $5 a month is a big help. And for those of you who contribute $10 a month or more, we have left-wing books to send you in the mail as a thank you. One of those books is my forthcoming book, All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, which is out next month from Verso. I will also be interviewed on The Dig right here about my book very soon by Astra Taylor. It will be weird and exciting to answer questions instead of asking them. Anyhow, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please and thank you. Okay, let's start this episode off with my first interview with Jessica Cisneros, an immigration attorney running against Henry Cuellar, one of the very worst Democrats in Congress for Texas's 28th district. If she wins, Cisneros will take Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's place as the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. Jessica Cisneros, welcome to The Dig. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Your district encompasses a lot of the Rio Grande Valley on the border with Mexico and also Laredo. It's about 80% Hispanic, overwhelmingly Democratic voting. People who live there are often also extremely poor. There's very low voter turnout, and it's governed by one of the most conservative 
Democrats in Congress, a guy with a pretty anti-immigrant voting record and a strong ally of big business. Explain your district, how your opponent, Henry Cuellar, has represented it, why you're running to defeat him, and how you're going to do it. Wow. Well, those are many, many questions. Let's break it down. Um, yeah, so I was born and raised here in Laredo, Texas, um, which is, you know, in many ways, the heart of the district. This is a 77% Latinx, you know, district. Um, one of the interesting facts that people are uh, intrigued to hear is that this is also a predominantly Spanish-speaking district. About 65-ish percent of people speak Spanish at home, and my family included. And you're right. This is the district that went to Hillary Clinton by 20 points in the last presidential election. The district where 65, 85% of the vote usually goes to Democrats. So it's a very safe, strong blue district. Um, but we are represented by one of the most conservative Democrats in Congress. Um, a little more context, context about the district. Um, it runs from Northeast San Antonio down to Laredo, Texas, and then down to Rio Grande Valley. It's a lot of area to cover. It takes us about six hours to drive through the entire district. Um, so all of these are, are challenges, right, that um, we're facing in terms of just given the size of the district and also the fact that, you know, Goyad has been an incumbent, has been in office for 15 years. Um, 13 of those years he's ran unopposed without um, a viable primary challenger. So this is really the first, you know, primary challenge in over a decade. So a lot of folks here on the ground are super excited um, I think one of the reasons why he's stayed in, in power for so long is just the fact that he's been leaning into these stereotypes. South Texas is very, very conservative and that we love, you know, the fact that he has an A rating from the NRA or that he voted with Trump 70 percent of the time in the last Congress or that he voted to fund the wall twice. But that certainly isn't the case. It's just the fact that he's been able to, again, because he's sitting on a large war chest and this is a, re- a district that is very resource intensive. He's been able to keep a, ch- a primary challenger away for a very long time. But to me, I think the last straw was, you know, how he has been bowing to the will of the Republican Party under the Trump administration. Um, I'm an immigration human rights attorney. I was doing that work. I've been doing immigrants' rights work since 2012. And the last part, I was, you know, focusing on on helping people that were, in detention centers, I've worked with families in detention centers with, with um, individuals facing their cases um, in immigration court while they're detained. And to me, it was very heartbreaking and frustrating doing that kind of work in the last few years under the Trump administration because um, I saw one too many families torn apart. You know, I kept bumping into these roadblocks of judges telling me that. They wanted to help, but they just couldn't because of the way, you know, the law is right now under the administration, knowing that, again, here we have a very, very blue district where we need to have someone that's actually going to stand up to Trump and the Republican Party, someone that's going to be a champion for the true democratic values that we believe in. Cuellar just wasn't doing that. And when I was approached and asked to run by the community, um, actually, my high school teacher was the one who nominated nominated me to the Justice Democrats. I felt like here was an opportunity that I've been praying and working so hard for to be an advocate and help help my community. And I needed to believe in myself the way that the people that wanted me to run believed in me. So I decided to step up for my community. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Your victory will require turning out a lot of people who don't normally vote. What's your strategy for doing that? And what does your ground game look like? 
for us, really meeting voters where they're at is really important. Again, I think this is an area, like you said, we're a very low voter turnout. It's because people feel like they've been voting and voting and voting, and we still end up with the same thing. So a lot of people just feel very uninspired, you know, to get involved in in politics and, and just merely go out and vote. I think that there's also, again, just given the demographics and, you know, the language, the predominant language in this district, politics usually happens in English, right? And I think that there's such a big part of the electorate that whose language is Spanish is the primary language. Um, and I think that's why for us it's so important to run a truly bilingual campaign, um, not only meeting voters, you know, at their doors, but like talking to them and engaging with them in a language that they better understand. I think it's really important to to engage those folks. And then also just the kind of campaign that we're running. I mean, I know this is, sounds like super simple, but people like the fact that we aren't taking any corporate PAC money and that the reason why we're doing that is so that we can be held accountable to just the folks from here and not, not outside corporate interests. The fact that I'm leading a team that's mostly composed of people from the district People here like that because, you know, they see themselves reflected with, with, uh, within this campaign. And I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, usually I don't get involved in politics, but I really like what you're doing and I believe in that. And, you know, I already told my, my friends and my family that we're going to go out and support you. So that's been incredibly exciting just to see how organically, you know, we're expanding the electorate, but then also, you know, making intentional decisions to make sure that we're engaging and inspiring as many people as we can to go out and vote. And then obviously, you know, the fact that the race is on March 3rd and lands on Super Tuesday, that's going to help out a lot in terms of voter turnout as well, since people um, are going to be going out to also vote for, you know, the presidential and, and Senate primaries. Political analysts are often talking about when and if Texas as a whole gets turned blue. And I, I hate that phrasing, this red, <laughs> blue organization of the country's politics. But and I think centrists tend to push this idea that neoliberal centrists are the best position to to flip districts and and flip states. What does you running this unabashedly left pro working class pro immigrant campaign against a Democrat who's essentially a Republican? What does that mean in the for the context of this bigger fight for Texas? You know, people focus a lot on when they talk about turning Texas blue. They focus a lot on those red to blue areas, which I think are important, right? But I think there's still a lot of work to be done in those areas where they're so deeply blue, but there's low voter turnout, like South Texas. I think South Texas is keen being able to flip Texas as a whole. And I think if we would have increased voter turnout, for example, in the last election to 20 or 25 percent instead of, you know, 11, 16 percent, we might have had a different senator right now uh, named Beto O'Rourke, right? But I think there's still a lot of work to be done down here to be able to do that. And I'm just so glad that we have this opportunity with our campaign to directly engage folks and get them involved and invested in the political process and show them that, um, you know, policies that are coming from Washington um, are really affecting us in our day to day here. And obviously for us, you know, recognizing that we have such a strong blue district here and that everything for the most part gets resolved in the primaries from March to November we're going to be focusing on increasing that voter turnout um, and making sure that we're doing our part, you know, to help up and down the ballot. A lot of people have have sort of compared you to AOC, sort of a a potential Texan AOC, but obviously you're a different person and your district certainly isn't New York City. Tell me a little bit about how 
for listeners who are thinking about organizing campaigns elsewhere in the country, how you think of this broader kind of nationwide wave of left insurgent candidates and how that how to tailor that to local conditions? I mean, more than anything to people that are, you know, thinking about running themselves um, on a progressive platform, um, always, I mean, the most valuable asset that I have as to why we've been able to run such a successful campaign down here is that I was born and raised in this district and I have an ear to the ground. And that's why I'm very confident that we're going to be winning on March 3rd because we're the ones, again, my team for the most part is from here and we know what the struggles are and we're able to talk about the challenges at the door because we face them ourselves, right? Like nothing can beat that kind of experience. Sure. It helps us because I think there's this national conversation about uh, Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and the $15 livable wage, which are so exciting and necessary. But when you talk to people here on the ground, they might not necessarily know what Medicare for all is or what the Green New Deal is, right? So for us, our responsibility is to be able to unpack that policy first, um, use anecdotes and personal experiences of what implementing those policies would mean here. And people get it. I mean, they're smart. You just need to, like, actually take the time to engage with them. And then you give it a label, right? Like Medicare para todos. Um, I'm also, it's, it's surprising how much campaigning I do in Spanish as well. So I'm very glad to be bilingual. But, you know, for example, when we're talking about Medicare for all, you know, for us right now, having access to healthcare here on the border means having to go into Mexico to go get medications and medical procedures done. Right. For women, since we also don't have a Planned Parenthood in this giant district, it means having to go into Mexico to go get mammograms and pap smears and birth control because just access to reproductive health services like those is just very difficult in this area. So we tell people, you know, how right now, the way that it is, we have to crowd raise to be able to afford any kind of treatment for the most part. We have to sell plates of food by the side of the highway here. Um, we do loterias, which is like Mexican bingo, to try to, you know, fundraise, do things like that, sell raffle tickets. When we tell people, like, imagine, you know, a world where a country where we don't have to do those things, where we don't have to go into another country to go have access to healthcare, where healthcare is a right and we don't have to continue losing loved ones because we just can't afford their care because I lost a knot to stomach cancer. And, you know, it was terrible because we did all the things to try to fundraise and it still wasn't enough. Right. And people get that. And we tell them like, okay, that premise, that idea that, you know, healthcare should be a right and not a privilege, that's Medicare for all. And, you know, people are again, ready and like that idea. Um, But it's just been unfortunate that under the current leadership, we haven't been having those conversations in a district in a very long time. I mean, Guayar has a really horrible record on working class issues. I mean, I assume obviously he doesn't support Medicare for all, but he also voted against Dodd-Frank financial reforms and was one of just two Democrats to vote against a bill this year to ban companies from forcing workers and consumers into private arbitration, which is really important legislation because basically private arbitration, we all with the the work contracts we sign and the things that we sign just to like sign up for an app force us into this private kangaroo court legal system (laughs) that takes away Mm -hmm. our, our rights to court. He voted against that and he gets plenty of support from finance, including more than all but two of his colleagues this cycle from the payday loan industry. Why is he so committed to corporate interests? And, and are you able to, to use that to mobilize working class people in your district against him? 
Yeah, I mean, why is he doing that? I mean, just follow the money. I think that's what people are, you know, here, they, they get that too. Um, and that's why I think they're super excited, you know, the fact that we're not taking any corporate PAC money because I tell them, like, I don't, you know, quiero ser vendida. Like, I don't want to be a sellout. I want to be accountable to you. And it's been interesting to see how that even resonates with the occasional Republican person we find while we're out there canvassing. Right. Cause we might not see eye to eye on the other issues, but I think that is one of those where we can come together and they're like, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I think we shouldn't have corporations influencing our politicians. And I think, you know, the reason why he's been doing this, is just the fact that he hasn't been held accountable in a very long time, but the mere fact that he hasn't had a challenger in over a decade. So he's been able to get away with all these, you know, very egregious votes. I think people here, you know, they can see the results of the absentee leadership and the straight up betrayal um, that he's basically been been doing over there in Washington. Um, but they can't necessarily point to the votes because, again, we haven't been exposing his record in the context of uh, a challenge. Um, so now so your campaign is also a process of political education. Exactly. And that's a huge lift. Right. But we're more than happy to do it because it's like that's what people here. That's what our community deserves. We're really upset and disappointed that the congressman, um, again, we haven't had an in-person town hall in many years. And we actually, after we filed, challenged the congressman to a series of four in-person town hall style debates here in the district, one in each region. And then I challenged him to one in complete Spanish. And he, his spokesperson had said no, that they weren't going to meet us at the debate stage. Um, But again, I think that's just this narrative of him just trying to evade, you know, having to face his super egregious track record. And um, yes, he hasn't been a friend to working families and working folks. This is why, you know, for us, we're really excited to be, have an open kind of partnership and relationship with unions whenever, you know, we're very happy to be able to listen to their concerns. And for me, you know, I, I would really want And you've really won some to... labor endorsements, right? That's right. That's right. And that was really exciting um, because, you know, I think that proves, you know, even even more like we're who this campaign is standing by. And we've received um, several local endorsements um, from unions here at home. So so that's been that's been really exciting. It's not just that he's tied into the to corporate America. He's deeply tied into Texas's Republican establishment. He endorsed Bush's presidential bid in 2000, and then he served as Governor Rick Perry's secretary of state. And just to give listeners a sense of how deeply embedded in the Republican establishment he is, he was the sole Democrat to oppose a 2011 congressional resolution condemning Governor Perry for having a hunting ranch. And I'm not going to say the full full name here for obvious reasons, but a hunting ranch that was called the n-word head ranch yes that was when i saw that i was just so shocked at again how blatantly egregious his track record has been and how he unreal was, yeah it's, my team and i were just shocked we kind of have this like kind of uh twisted joke on our campaign that it's like you know he can't be that much worse and then like he is we keep finding out more and more you know votes that it's just like what were you thinking like this these are not the values of south texas at all well speaking of which we've alluded to this before but not directly talked about his immigration voting record you grew up in laredo and your parents worked as as farm workers after immigrating from right across the border in nuevo laredo in in mexico and you, before launching this race, worked as an immigration lawyer. But Cuellar, 
has an atrocious record on immigration. In 2012, he led a push to transfer, and this is his office's words, quote, surplus equipment returning from Iraq and Afghanistan to the southern border with Mexico. Then in 2014, according to the Dallas Morning News, he, quote, was teaming up with Senator John Cornyn, the deputy GOP leader in the Senate, on a bill to speed deportation of Central American children. That was a bill with the rather Orwellian name, the Humane Act. And then in 2018, he supported a Republican measure to gut the Flores Agreement, which offers critical protections by placing time limits on the detention of migrant children. It's the Flores Agreement that, that the Trump mm-hmm. administration and and before that, to be to be fair, the Obama administration were fighting in court because it offers immigrants important right, immigrant youth important rights. How can Cuellar embrace such anti-immigrant politics while representing such a heavily immigrant and Latino border district? And and how are you using your pro-immigrant agenda to mobilize voters? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I became an immigration attorney was because I was very inspired by the cross-cultural, you know, beautiful area of the country I was born in. Like here in Laredo, yeah. everybody has, you know, their recent immigrant story, or it seems that way, right? Whether it be their themselves, their parents, or grandparents, like it's all there. And, you know, this is an area of the country where Spanish is the default language. You know, you go to any events, you go to any restaurant, like people speak Spanish to you first before they speak English to you. And knowing that my parents were beneficiaries of immigration reform themselves because they were farm workers, they were able to, you know, be beneficiaries of the 1986 immigration reform. And, you know, being familiar with all those things, to me, that was, you know, what inspired me to do this kind of work, to be able to fight and protect, you know, help protect families um, that look like my parents or look like mine. And to see Cuellar, who's also the son of farm workers, son of immigrants, like basically, you know, turn his back to people like that. It's very upsetting. The fact that there's so many people here in South Texas, whose families got started off as farm workers as well. And that he voted to cut farm worker wages by $3 per hour in the last Congress. Like that is very personal to so many people, because again, I think it just shows that once he got into office, he kind of forgot about the people who helped get him there. The fact that he's receiving um, hundreds and thousands of dollars from the private prison industry, from those, you know, detention centers where... More than anyone in the house this cycle. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And... Um, his top single source of donations his career over his career has been the Geo Group, the one of the, yes. you know, this massive private prison and detention center operators. He He's that industry's guy, top guy. And that's like the work that I've been doing, right? I've been helping people in those detention centers. It's um, it's like terrible and shocking the kind of abuses that happen in there. And then to have you know my congressman be okay with you know the the government basically detaining these people in these conditions, and they're people that look like him and his family. You know what I mean? And again, I I, I the fact that. Now, next to my childhood park, there's these kangaroo. We were talking about kangaroo courts earlier. Um, the fact that there's these remain in Mexico, you know, kangaroo, kangaroo right. courts next to them is kind of like such a weird juxtaposition for me. And I think, you know, the fact that when the Humane Act was introduced back in 2014, I believe, you know, he was bragging about how he was making it easier to, you know, deport migrant children. Um, but also, there was like a provision in there, I believe, that 
kind of, you know, conceived of this idea of courts on, on the border and to see it play out, you know, in real time and it happening, you know, again, right next to, you know, my childhood park, right next to the international bridge is just ridiculous. But yes, I mean, I think people here, again, like this is one of the many ways where he's been able to get away with um, these egregious votes because he hasn't been held accountable and people just didn't know, you know, how much, how much of a hand he had in all of this. And, and now they're learning. And now, you know, it's, it's very obvious that they're very upset. Cuellar is the last thing I want to talk about. He, he's also horrendous on the environment. He voted for a Republican resolution against a carbon tax. He voted for an amendment that would bar the federal government from taking the social cost of carbon emissions into account when rulemaking. And he voted against Obama's clean power plan. Obama did nowhere near enough to deal with climate change. In fact, in a lot of ways, he made it worse. But this was one important thing that he did to target emissions from power plants. And Cuellar said, quote, the fact is that the traditional energy sector employs thousands of people and contributes tens of millions of dollars to local schools in the form of royalties and property taxes. So when we talk about energy and the environment, we need to consider how we can support both endeavors. But according to Roll Call, your district will be one of the hardest hit by climate change in economic terms. And this cycle, he has received the fifth most contributions from the oil and gas industry of anyone in the house. So th- this is a big question, but w- what are the environmental conditions in your district? And how do you lead on fighting for a Green New Deal in Texas, given the fossil fuel industry's extraordinary power and importance? How do you win people over to a fight against their incredible power? You know, the values that I always talk about, you know, that South Texas has is family and hard work, family and hard work. That's what people care about, you know, the fact that climate change is going to affect their family, their children. I mean, everybody here isn't, you know, the people that I've talked to, um, the people whose doors we're knocking, they understand that climate change is real and that we need to address it. If not, what's going to happen to their children or their grandchildren? The way hard work comes in is like, yeah, I mean, nobody's, you know, being naive and saying that a transition into renewable energy is going to be an easy one, um, but we're willing to put in the work. And Yes, well, there are a lot of people here who are dependent on jobs, you know, in, in the fossil fuel industry. We also believe in our community that we can teach ourselves how to do some other kind of work, right? And when we're talking about the Green New Deal, we're talking about jobs that we can have here in our community. Like there's South Texas, um, you know, there's a lot of sun, as you can imagine, um, a lot of wind, and we have the Rio Grande River. So our district really can be a leader in harnessing those resources, those natural resources and be able to use them to transition, you know, into a green economy. Like for me, it's super exciting to think about, you know, Laredo being the number one land port in the United States, because that means there's a lot of trade. And also thinking about, well, how can we make that trade greener, right? Like how can we transition into you know, more environmental friendly vehicles. Like how can, what, what does that look like here in this district? What does the Green New Deal look like in this district? When I go out there and I'm walking through the colonias, which are, which are these unincorporated areas, little pockets in our district where there's no infrastructure. Well, if the interest infrastructure of the century was missing, what is it going to look like if we, you know, the concept of green colonias, right? Like if we invest in infrastructure that is 
going to keep the carbon footprint very low. And, you know, at the same time, having paved roads that are environmentally friendly, um, having solar panels out there and like all that infrastructure, like making it new and making sure that there are local jobs, there's people that are going to have those jobs. Because one of the problems that we have right now with people, yes, going out to oil rigs to go work is the fact that those jo- those jobs aren't here. Usually people have to end up going to Odessa, Texas, up in North Texas, or even or New, New Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, yeah, or New Mexico. And, you know, that's really not helping, you know, the people here. Um, and it's interesting because as I've been walking and, and, you know, meeting people and campaigning, again, sometimes you run into the occasional Republican, but they're actually kind of excited at the prospect of having the jobs here in the district um, because people are tired that, you know, South Texans feel like they have to leave to be able to have a shot at, you know, a decent life. So I think like the Green New Deal, I mean, it's it's already the transition is already happening. Um, there's areas in our district where there's solar panels and the solar farms and the and the wind turbines. And that's pretty exciting. And to me, whenever we drive through it, it's kind of like a glimpse to the future. And, you know, people are actually upset because it's like, well, we want more of that because there's only some areas of the district that have that. And people see it because you have to drive through this major highway to be able to get in between uh, cities in the district. And people can't wait to, to, to be increasing, you know, the kind of opportunities there. So I think that, again, this is just a great opportunity for us to dive in um, in terms of, you know, effects that we have down here. We are going to be some of the other ones that are impacted the most. I think environmental racism is definitely a thing. Um, and I think the environment is at the forefront of many people. It certainly is for people here in Laredo because I think recently we kind of had uh, a scare um, because we weren't able to drink our water for a couple of weeks because there was a water boil notice. um, And it was mostly, I believe, with, you know, some infrastructure problems, but also, I mean, the fact that, you know, our our river, we're not doing a great job to take care of it. So we weren't able to drink water for two weeks here without boiling at first. And I think that kind of got people in the mindset of, well, this was just like only a scare. It was only two weeks, but what's going to happen if we actually don't take care of our river um, and it's our only source of water. And the fact that it keeps getting hotter and hotter every year. I mean, this year it's, it's not unusual for South Texas to have temperatures in like 110, 115 over the summer and very long droughts as well. So people are super aware of that. It's just a matter of having the political courage to stand up to the fossil fuel industry, which we have. I mean, uh, we are not taking any money from the fossil fuel fuel industry because, again, we just want to be accountable to our community here. And ways that people can get involved or support the campaign? Yeah, so our website is jessicacisnerosforcongress.com. My last name is C-I-S-N-E-R-O-S. Um, you know, people can learn more about where we stand on the issues there, learn more about me, figure out ways to volunteer. Um, donations are always appreciated. We're a grassroots campaign and every dollar counts down here. And, um, you know, we're also on social media, so please feel free to follow. Um, our primary is March 3rd. Even though it is a primary, it kind of feels like a little red to blue just happening on Super Tuesday. So we really appreciate everyone just, you know, staying in the loop and helping us out however they can. Well, Jessica Cisneros, thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) 
Jessica Cisneros is an immigration attorney running against Henry Cuellar, one of the very worst Democrats in Congress, for Texas's 28th district. Next up is Stephen Smith, who is running a populist campaign to win the Democratic primary for governor of West Virginia. Stephen Smith, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this. To start out, tell me about the People's Platform, which your campaign calls, quote, the boldest state platform in modern American history. What is it? How did you draft it in town halls and conversations across the state? And what role has its drafting and rollout played in building your campaign on the ground? Sure. So the thing that our campaign believes is that what the state needs, what the country needs, is not one politician, uh, but a movement. And that, in fact, movements and unions are the only things in American history that have won the kind of change that we need. So when we set out to build the campaign, one of the things that we set aside was we want to make sure that what we're fighting for, the platform that we're advancing, is something that was literally written by uh, the people of West Virginia who work the hardest and who bear the greatest burden. So for the last year, we've held 149 town halls. Um, our county and constituency teams have organized more than 600 meetings that I've been to and hundreds more uh, that they've held on their own. They've also conducted more than 10,000 voter-to-voter conversations asking people, what would you do if you were governor? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? Uh, And then we took all of that information. We were recording it as it went along. Um, We had a a research team made up of leaders inside our campaign that did writing retreats. And we put together a draft platform about two months ago and then put that platform back out to our county and constituency teams. So they had 47 platform parties where they got to read this monstrous document, uh, stew on it. give. And you have a team in each county. Yep, 55 counties in West Virginia, 55 county teams. Uh, We also have 39 constituency teams, so veterans, seniors, social workers, people in recovery, ex-offenders, LGBTQ+, uh, you name it, 39 constituency teams, 55 county teams. Uh, Among them, they held 47 platform parties across the state where people, our leaders could come and see the platform and give another round of feedback. So we had another thousand plus comments uh, on that draft. And then leaders from the county and constituency teams came together in person for a final convention and ratified a platform uh, about a month ago. And we're, uh, we rolled out a summary of that, which you can find online. And uh, we're rolling out the specific plans, 32 specific detailed policy plans, a couple a week moving forward. So when we say it's the boldest uh, policy platform in in recent history, uh, we think that's not just because of what's in it and the content, but because of the process that created it, that um, what we think uh, our politics needs in West Virginia and around the country is not so much uh, the triumph of a particular ideology. Uh, What we need is the triumph of people writing their own laws and building their own government from the bottom up. Uh, and that we trust the people of West Virginia uh, who are in the middle of 
you know, having to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet or uh, fighting against out-of-state corporations. They try to keep their farm or small business alive or who are struggling against the daily indignities of trying to be a woman or a black person or a member of the LGBTQ plus community in West Virginia, they know best. Uh, No one knows best uh, than you do what you're up against and what it would take to change it. I think the left really needs to put forward these these bold and comprehensive visions to motivate people to win. And I think this is true everywhere, but I maybe particularly so in West Virginia, where dreaming big means imagining a West Virginia where people have a future, which given how many young people that current economic conditions are driving out of the state, the the despair that is in turn driving the opi- opioid crisis and the the general rightward shift in politics that the state has experienced in recent years, that it just seems really critical. Say more about how you see envisioning big picture transformation and inviting people to be the protagonists and making that a reality, how you see that transforming West Virginia politics. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it is especially true here in West Virginia, uh, but increasingly so across the state, that the fight isn't really left versus right at all. Uh, The day-to-day fight is not a, a polite argument between two ideologies where someone is going to win by being smarter than their opponent. What we are engaged in is a battle for power. Uh, And it's in West Virginia, it's the people, we call them the good old boys club at the top, Uh, the people who have long gotten rich uh, off of our work and off of our pain uh, for generations. Um, Sometimes they call themselves Democrats and sometimes they call themselves Republicans. Um, But you know them when you see them. And that the work of defeating them is not primarily the work of imagination. It's not the work of policy wonks. It's the work of organizers. Uh, So in the development of our platform, in the development of our movement, what we center is not our big ideas of what should change. What we center is listening. Uh, That literally most of what we do at our town halls, most of what we ask our volunteers to do Uh, is asking their friends and neighbors tough questions, listening to the answers, asking more questions, and then at the end of the conversation saying, what role do you want in moving this forward? And that's how we end up with a campaign that not just has a a really strong platform that we're proud of, but that also has uh, more than 500 people who have signed on as county captains or constituency captains or who have hosted uh, a town hall or a fundraiser. That's how we end up with 66 candidates up and down the ballot, uh, most of them, 45 or six of them, uh, like me, first-time candidates who have signed on to a pledge saying, we'll, we'll never take corporate cash, we'll never cross a picket line, we'll never hide from a debate, we'll never punch down, and perhaps most importantly, that we will do the work of meeting with our constituents from the ground up. And that kind of work uh, is exciting because it doesn't require you to be some uh, brilliant policy expert uh, or to be highly educated. What it requires you to be is willing to listen to your neighbors and uh, talk to anyone, no matter what uh, letter they may have after their name or who they voted for in 2016. And uh, for folks who are listening to this, what that results in is a politics and a campaign and a movement 
where the folks who are leading are the ones who have done the most work of organizing and listening. Um, so I'll give you an example of how that plays out. Uh, so when we had that delegates convention where the county and constituency teams got together to ratify the final platform, right? It was this uh, beautiful moment where we had all these folks from different walks of life, uh, most of whom had never been involved in a political uh, campaign, none of whom did this work for a living. So there was no nonprofit professionals or professional organizers. The people in that room were the ones who essentially got a ticket into that room by being the folks who had held the most one-on-one conversations over the summer. And so we're literally rewarding the people who have done the most work of organizing with a literal seat at the table in deciding the platform. And it was just thrilling to watch people of all different ages and races and backgrounds um, uh, not just get together as uh, what often happens uh, in these sorts of meetings as a, a sort of token representative of a certain ideology or perspective, but as people who were uh, quite truly representing uh, that in some cases, 100, 200 people that they had had one-on-one face-to-face conversations with and recorded the results. There's often a lot of debate on the left over the trade-offs or the perceived trade-offs between electoral work and all of the organizing that is not electoral. How are you using your gubernatorial campaign, which has a very strong not me us sort of vibe because you know you, you don't even you don't even have a twitter campaign with twitter handle with your name on it it's a handle for your entire movement and the uh you know all of the people down ballot that you're running alongside how are you using that not only your gubernatorial campaign but this this campaign of many campaigns to build long-term movement infrastructure in west virginia that is there for the long haul regardless of how how any of the particular campaigns turn out Throughout the campaign, uh, even from before the campaign launched, uh, the idea was to build uh, lasting political infrastructure, a a political machine that works on behalf of uh, poor and working people, not on behalf of the folks that are getting rich off of poor and working people. And so, uh, as you pointed out, from the very beginning, uh, our website was wvcantwait.com. We had this candidate pledge where we encouraged Uh, as many candidates as we can to sign it. And uh, we spend my time recruiting other candidates and uh, helping to train candidates. We've had five candidate trainings in the course of the campaign. Each one of those county and constituency teams I mentioned uh, is also intentionally not named after one person, mostly because it's a lie, right? I mean, the, uh, the lie that politics tells is, trust me, I'll fix it. And yet we all know from history that never in American history, never in West Virginia history, has one politician achieved the kind of change our state and our country desperately need. Again, it's always required unions and movements. So when we build a Roan County can't wait team or a Mason County can't wait team or a educators can't wait team, what we're doing is saying what we believe is that what our state needs is not a thousand veterans or a thousand educators or a thousand people in Roan County who believe in one person. We need a thousand educators and veterans and people in one county to fight for themselves, regardless of who the governor is or who the legislature is. I think the other place that shows up is 
in where we spend money, uh, that most campaigns are obsessed with spending money on uh, garbage that gets thrown away, literally, right? Uh, TV ads that may be seen once and then disregarded or mailers that show that up pile in the up. mailbox. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and uh, they do that not because it's effective, uh, but because it's easier for the wealthy, right? Uh, we actually know uh, from political science that one-on-one face-to-face conversations are infinitely more effective than TV ads or mailers, um, but they're also harder to do. It's harder to pay someone to have an impassioned conversation. Yeah, you, uh, you actually so, have to win those people over as volunteers who will have earnest conversations from the bottom of their heart. You can't. It's hard to pay people to do that. Exactly, exactly. And so instead, in our campaign, the way we spend money uh, is uh, largely on field, uh, on organizers. We have incredible, brilliant staff, all women uh, who are organizing day in, day out across the state. And at most of our town halls, at most of our uh, visits and meetings where I am, uh, there's no staff with me. We have volunteers who will ride with me from time to time, um, but our staff is busy doing organizing. So when you donate to our campaign, uh, quite literally where your money goes is into the uh, wages and benefits of strong women organizers building our infrastructure from the bottom up to last beyond the election. And uh, it was no surprise to us, and we were happy to support it. They formed the first campaign staff union in West Virginia history. Wow. Congratulations to them. Stepping back a, a little, West Virginia has long been the, the butt of some outsiders' jokes about rednecks, part of this sort of class-based racism that affluent whites direct against poor rural whites, and all this elite derision and condescension towards white working class people, which of course also exists in even you know greater quantities towards poor black people, but towards white working class people in particular, this accelerated after Trump's victory, when a lot of liberal elites, I think, found it convenient to blame ordinary white working class people instead of the ruling class for the state of affairs that our country has found itself in. But but the teacher strike really changed, really turned that on its head. It reminded the country, and it maybe also reminded West Virginians too, that West Virginia is a state with an unrivaled history in terms of militant worker struggle. And your campaign states, quote, to win this government, we must do what the teachers and school service personnel have done. We must do what Bill Blizzard and Sid Hatfeld and Sid Hatfield and Mother Jones did a century ago during the mine wars. How has the teachers' strike changed West Virginia's politics since, since most of us outside the state haven't been paying as close attention since the strike ended? Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Uh, I think a helpful way to think about it for folks outside of West Virginia uh, is uh, that everything you've heard about our place is wrong. Uh, <laughs> good that's place a good to start. Place to start. <laughs> uh, and if uh, if you want to know more about it, uh, we invite you to come and see us up close. Um, uh, and and the reason why what you've heard is wrong is because uh, there are plenty of people in our political system who profit off of that lie, right? Uh, that if the folks on the coast, if corporate interests, if party leadership uh, can convince people that poor people in Appalachia are our problem instead of the wealthy people who get rich off of poor people in Appalachia and Detroit and Chicago, um, if we convince each other that we're each other's problems, uh, then they win. 
so th- this lie is a profitable one. It's not an accidental one. And so if you look at West Virginia's politics, it's actually far more interesting and complicated and in some ways thrilling. For 80 years, uh, 80 to 82 years, Democrats held power in West Virginia, and then Republicans took over a few years ago. But when uh, you talk about West Virginia as a red state or as Trump country or whatever, it's fundamentally misunderstanding what's going on. We actually have more Democrats uh, than Republicans registered to this day. But the truth is the plurality of West Virginia voters uh, don't really identify with either party. In West Virginia, we say, I vote the uh, person, not the party. But what it really means is I don't trust the leadership of either party to work on my behalf because my whole life, regardless of who is in charge, my life has gotten worse. Uh, And that is an incontrovertible fact for the majority of West Virginia families. And so what is happening right now in West Virginia is not uh, a quote unquote red moment or a blue moment. It's an anti-establishment moment. And that anti-establishment feeling is righteous. (laughs) And you saw it uh, come to life during the teacher strike. Uh, And the teacher strike is more of a reminder, as you pointed out, of who we are and where we come from, not something that that came out of the blue. And this is even supported in polling. And it's kind of interesting. So, you know, in 2016, when you had uh, Trump and Clinton on a ballot, um, the president defeated uh, Clinton uh, by a a margin, I think the second highest margin in the country. But uh, 68% of the vote, I believe. That's right. Just as important, though, uh, more people stayed home, even in West Virginia in 2016, than voted for the president. And when you put uh, Bernie and Trump on a, uh, a ballot or a questionnaire or survey, it's a wash. Uh, in the last uh, poll that was done, this was during uh, the Trump presidency, Bernie beat Trump 48-46 uh, in West Virginia, so within the margin of error. But the most important thing is not that uh, you can sort of fight an anti-establishment, multiracial populism against Trump's anti, uh, anti-Black uh, sort of nationalist politics. The really interesting thing is that the political actors in West Virginia who are far more popular than Trump or Bernie or any other national politician are our teachers. Right. Uh, That the teachers and school service personnel who led that strike last year and then went back on strike this year, even when they were offered a deal that would have made them a little bit more money but would have hurt their students by privatizing education, they went back on strike. Uh, And I think that's something that's lost in the story of the strike movement, especially in West Virginia, is uh, the courage and solidarity it takes to go back out on strike uh, and risk losing your own raise because you want what's best for the kids of the state. Uh, And I think our teachers and school service personnel don't get enough credit for that act of courage. And in both cases, in both strikes, uh, they were supported by uh, parents and community leaders, et cetera, I and a few other people and during the 2018 strike came together as citizens and helped put together a $332,000 strike fund uh, to help the teachers and school service personnel. And it was one of the easiest organizing campaigns I've ever been a part of because people were coming out of the woodwork to say, I can chip in some of the money to help these teachers and school service personnel do what they're doing. Tell me where to sign up. Uh, So it's been uh, an exciting uh, reminder for those of us who live here of who we are, of where we come from, and not uh, that we should be more left-wing or more democratic or whatever, but that 
we have the answers ourselves. Uh, that if you give us a choice between um, uh, right-wing populism or left-wing populism, uh, we're going to be split down the middle. But when you give us a choice to actually run our own government, and that's what happened for nine days in 2018, the teachers and school service personnel and parents and citizen leaders essentially ran the government of West Virginia, uh, that that's the thing we want most. And that's why our campaign uh, has a shot of winning, uh, not because we've created uh, this moment or this movement, uh, but because we're trying to be led by it. Recently, Bernie Sanders was asked how he could get things like Medicare for all through through Congress if he became president, given particularly one of the senators mentioned, given senators like West Virginia's Joe Manchin, which sort of is based on this idea that it's also the people in places like West Virginia, the, the, the voters who elect Manchin, rather than, say, the insurance industry, that's going to be the biggest obstacle in getting something like Medicare for all done. And Bernie's response, which I think some haters took as as unrealistic, was that the mass mobilization of working class people in places like Virginia could transform politics there and everywhere around this country. What's your take, this sort of fatalistic idea that like someone like Joe Manchin will, will always be there representing West, West Virginia in the U.S. Senate and making progressive change for this whole country impossible? This kind of thinking is how we got into the mess we're in. It's that lie that uh, politicians tell, that the press tells, uh, that elites tell, and that uh, too often we believe that the answer to our problem uh, is uh, individual people. The answer to our problem is individual politicians. And when you tell a political story where all of the protagonists are politicians, uh, of course you're going to get a bad ending, right? Never in American history has the kind of change we want ever happened because of some nice guy who is in office, uh, right? I mean, when I was taught growing up, I was taught growing up that uh, the New Deal happened because Franklin Roosevelt was a really great guy. Well, <laughs> that's BS, right? I mean, uh, no, it happened because it was the greatest moment uh, of uh, labor unrest and pressure in American history. He was afraid of what would happen if, if the policies coming out of the administration were not boldly in favor of the people, right? And so whether it's Joe Manchin or anyone else, we can't allow ourselves to get sucked into the idea uh, that any one person or handful of people are the answer. We are the answer. And for you, that may, might mean deciding this is the year you run for office. But more likely, it means this is the year that you're going to start talking to your neighbors about the landlord that's taking advantage of everybody, or you're going to walk into your workplace and start uh, chatting people up about what it would take to start a union that uh, quite literally only are we ever going to get the kind of changes like Medicare for all uh, when all of us change what's possible? You know, before the teachers went on strike in 2018, the conventional wisdom uh, was that it was impossible for them to win a 2% raise. And in some respects, under those political circumstances, it was impossible. And then in the end, it became inevitable that they won a 5% raise. Because they changed, they changed the circumstances. They changed what was possible. Exactly right. And that's, that's the only thing that can change what's possible. And it's happened before uh, with Senator Manchin, who said uh, originally that he was going to oppose protecting uh, Medicaid expansion and, and oppose protecting the Affordable Care Act, and then shifted uh, because 
a bunch of our organizations and citizen leaders came together, held five, six hundred person uh, town halls across the state uh, and brought to bear our stories and our political muscle. And the senator ended up uh, holding steady on protecting the Affordable Care Act. And uh, not because of him or because of the rightness of the argument, but because of us, because of hundreds of people, thousands of people who would have been directly affected by that loss uh, coming together and organizing. Even though the the coal industry has been devastated by forces that have nothing at all to do with protecting the environment, things like the rise of natural gas, it has no doubt been blamed on the environment, this whole narrative about a, a liberal elite waging the so-called war on coal. To what degree have extractive industries won workers to their side through through anti-environmental politics? And how do you advance an agenda in West Virginia that wins working class people over to an agenda that is both pro-worker and pro-environment and that targets coal bosses as the enemy? Yeah, so extractive industries have not won over working people. What's happened is that uh, politicians and political parties have lost working people. Um, that uh, no one knows better than a coal miner in West Virginia about the devastation brought about by the coal industry and coal bosses. And the real fight is not pro-coal or anti-coal. That's a fiction made up by the coal bosses uh, and that is believed by elites outside of West Virginia. That's not the real fight. The real fight is and always has been coal miners uh, versus coal executives. Uh, And we know which side we're on. And we can absolutely build a movement uh, that has room for environmental advocates and coal miners and all kinds of other people who move to West Virginia because of the beauty of our land and water and uh, outdoors. Uh, we can all be on the same side because we have the same enemy and the same uh, set of enemies outside of our state getting rich off of all of us. But the way you do that is not to do what the National Democratic Party has done, which is essentially to wave their uh, wag their finger at coal miners and say, you're the problem for all this. Uh, coal miners took the worst job on planet Earth 100 years ago you were more likely in 1918, you were more likely to die on the job if you were a coal miner in West Virginia than you were a soldier serving overseas in World War One. They took that job through union organizing and through their own blood uh, and turned it into a middle class, upper middle class living. And it is exactly that example that we need to take into every single industry in the country, including the clean energy, clean energy industry. We need to learn from and be led by coal miners uh, to see how can we take those lessons and that worker power into every single industry. And only when we do that will we have uh, both the environmental change and uh, the economic change that can create a sustainable country. And we're seeing it inside of our campaign that we are able uh, to put forward a platform uh, that will be rolled out over the coming weeks and months that is. Uh, boldly ambitious on protecting our land and water and raising the severance tax on coal and natural gas, and uh, that speaks directly to the interests of coal miners by providing uh, a jobs guarantee and a black lung pension fund, uh, things that should have been delivered by the political class a long time ago, 
Um, but of course, the political class is not interested in actually serving coal miners, but but their bosses. Who are your primary opponents, and what's the race looking like? Um, it's still shaking out. Uh, I think there's uh, three who have signed up, maybe a couple more coming. The deadline is uh, not until uh, January. Uh, and, uh, you know, what it's going to look like is uh, a bunch of nice folks uh, with uh, <laughs> some good ideas, uh, with some good ideas of how to make things a little bit better for people. And uh, what we believe is that we don't just need another nice guy who's got a couple ideas. What we need is a people's government. And in that regard, uh, we're the only campaign that's even attempting to offer that. Um, the only campaign that has rejected corporate cash, the only campaign that's pledged to never cross a picket line, the only campaign uh, that has a union staff, uh, the only campaign that's actively recruiting and supporting down-ballot candidates, uh, the only campaign building county-level infrastructure, uh, that what we're offering is not uh, one nice guy, although I like to think I fit that bill. Uh, what we're offering is a chance for you to be a part of governing your own county and uh, community. The Republican governor, who whoever wins the primary, hopefully you will, will be running against, is named Jim Justice. He's the richest person in the entire state, which is... Uh, you know, that's cool. Um, he was elected. <laughs> yeah, that's how politics should work, obviously. He was elected as a Democrat and then switched parties in a rally with Trump. He's a pretty crappy guy. Uh, what What is the basis of Justice's popular support, given that he's made his wealth exploiting the people he now governs? And And how do you and your movement provide an alternative that exposes who he is and uses that to beat him. Cause we can kind of like rehearse what I'm guessing will be the sort of attack lines that you're a socialist extremist, that you're part you're allied with environmentalists in the war on coal. I mean, and I'm sure you, you have more ideas of what he'll say, but I'm guessing those two will be part of the mix. Sure. So uh, he's not popular, right? Uh, uh, he won the election because he was uh, up against uh, other opponents who uh, couldn't match uh, his wealth uh, and couldn't match uh, a field operation or an organizing strategy that could take his wealth on. Uh, and that's going to happen again. Uh, there are going to be people in this race on both sides of the aisle who put enormous amounts of personal wealth in and flood the airwaves. Um, and so what we have to do is not so much a problem of coming up with a clever argument. It's just that we have to build more power than our opponent. And that's what we're doing. So the first polls came out a few days ago, and we're beating uh, all of our primary opponents, uh, which is great. Uh, we've raised more money uh, than all of our opponents, including Jim Justice, combined so far. Uh, but we're doing it with small dollar donations. That's the thing about money. We can actually out-organize our opponents, even when it comes to money, if we're willing to work harder. And so uh, we have a whole year left in this campaign, and we've already broken the record for most small-dollar donations in a governor's race in West Virginia history. And that's the only way to do it. We've got to build more power, and we have to give people a reason uh, to believe that real change is possible. Uh, and, and that's what where our platform came, comes in, what we were talking about before, that uh, for far too long, uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle, but especially in the Democratic Party, uh, have been offering 
uh, a politics of trying not to offend anybody. Uh, and it turns out that when you try not to offend anybody, it means you don't stand for anything either. And that what is happening in West Virginia and across the country is people, the way one of our supporters put it is he said, you know, I got to tell you, I don't normally vote. And I said, how come? He said, why would I want to choose between getting bitten by a snake or eaten by a bear? Uh, that <laughs> yeah, for too much of too, West Virginia too, too, too unpleasant West experiences. Virginia history, <laughs> that's right. For too much of West Virginia history, it didn't matter who was in that uh, uh, seat or what party they were from. Uh, they were there to get themselves and their buddies rich. And that story is one that Jim Justice fits snugly into. Uh, and we can tell that story because it's one that every person in West Virginia has watched happen. And uh, we've now seen it. I think before he got elected, he could make some kind of claim that he was going to be anti-establishment because he was not a traditional party pick. And that was true. Uh, he certainly can't make that argument anymore, uh, that uh, this is a man who got wealthy off of cheating the government and uh, cheating small businesses and exploiting his workers. And that's exactly what he's done uh, in office. He's like a caricature of a feudal robber baron. Uh, he is. Uh, he is. And this is, this is the moment <laughs> we live in in uh, American history where things are so broken and people are so desperate uh, that the very worst of who we are emerges and the very best of who we are emerges. And so the stakes uh, could not be higher. And, and we see it throughout American history, right? The, the New Deal and the Japanese internment happened around the same time. The civil rights movement in the Vietnam War, that in these moments of great turmoil, we see the best and the worst. And it's up to every one of us uh, to try to sacrifice as much as we can and risk as much as we can uh, to try to make sure that what comes out, what wins out in the end is the best. And it's often places like West Virginia where those kinds of battles are decided. Anything to add before we finish up? I guess the only thing I would add is an invitation uh, that if you're listening to this and you're curious about what this kind of grassroots politics looks like and, and how we're trying to meld movement work with electoral politics and advance uh, not just a person but a machine, uh, it's a story that we're still learning and we enjoy telling and sharing with other folks. So uh, please be in touch with me. Uh, obviously, uh, if you're interested in getting more involved in the campaign or learning what we're up to, our Twitter handle is at WV Can't Wait. We're WV Can't Wait on Facebook, WVCan'tWait.com. Uh, it's fairly easy to find my contact information, too. And uh, we're excited to be getting interest from people around the country about what we're doing and, and uh, always happy to share what we're learning and the mistakes we're making along the way. Stephen Smith, thank you so much. Thank you. Stephen Smith is running a populist campaign to win the Democratic primary for governor of West Virginia. Last up is Heidi Sloan, a farmer and DSA organizer running for Congress in Texas's 25th congressional district. She organized for paid sick days, moved a congressman to sign on to Medicare for All, fought to decriminalize homelessness, and was arrested on a picket line with striking workers. 
And now, she's building a movement in Texas to demand health and housing justice, workers' rights, a Green New Deal, and justice system reform. Heidi Sloan, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Before launching this campaign, you've spent years working, teaching children with disabilities in public schools, and then working, helping formerly homeless people learn how to do farm work, and you continue to do the latter today, I believe. How has all this work with people that the system we live under systematically marginalizes how has that shaped your politics? Yeah, thank you for that question. It is incredibly formative. So I was really fortunate when I worked in a public school to be in a school that was actually incredibly well-resourced and well-funded. It happened to be in a very nice part of Austin. And I worked in a classroom, a PPCD classroom, which is a preschool program for children with disabilities, which means I got to spend my days with three to six-year-olds who were across the spectrum of needs. Uh, And what was beautiful and formative about that experience was seeing every single day that an integrated classroom that looked to support every student within it ended up providing outcomes that were better across the board, that students' creativity and their relationships, their emotional intelligence was just hugely improved. And it wasn't that we were just uplifting one portion of our classroom, but that everybody was benefiting. And so there was this, there was this goodness there. And when I chose to stop teaching and started looking for a farming job, I got the opportunity to join the organization that I'm a part of now, which is is a farm that is situated smack dab in the middle of a permanent supportive housing community. And we, we provide um, homes for folks who have experienced chronic homelessness. And what is sort of similar in that circumstance is realizing that the work that we get to do every day to provide care and food and a beautiful atmosphere for our neighbors, again, ends up lifting all of us, uh, that we all have a good time, that we all have improved health. And knowing that these sort of populations, these people who um, are often the first to be crossed off the list as far as resources go, resource allocation goes, whether it's people with disabilities or people who are homeless or people with disabilities who are homeless, which is a whole lot of them, that we can actually solve for those by solving for human dignity and human rights as a whole and that we don't have to say it's a trade-off, that actually we can say uh, when we center Folks who have been on the front lines, folks who have been most impacted by the hardships of our social and economic system, life looks better for all of us. And that's honestly like how I came to democratic socialism, and that's how I came to organizing as a whole. One thing that's I like about the way that you talk about your work and the way that that your campaign talks about on your website is often, I think, when candidates are talking about their work doing service, whether it's as a career or or a volunteer activity, it's sort of (laughs) to signal their own goodness, where on your website, it emphasizes that, that you observe students 
hold the hands of their blind classmates and walk down the hall together just for the sake of their own curiosity and compassion. The, I really liked the way that you emphasized what you learned from watching this sort of solidarity emerge yeah, on the classroom floor. Absolutely. And it, it, I mean, it was honestly so cool. I, After I noticed that behavior starting to just naturally happen or, or amongst the kids that I was around, I started being more inquisitive myself. And so there was a, a child with visual impa- impairments and we used to always talk about what her dreams looked like, which just like lit up my brain and my imagination. And now when I'm on the farm, asking people who have for a good portion of their lives had to be really incredibly resourceful to help me solve problems, to stand alongside me and do um, the tough work of farming, the really innovative and creative everyday battle to just get things to grow. They're, they're so willing and able to tap into that and to the sense of solidarity that um, to be included and to be pushing something forward together is like is incredibly joyful for all of us. And I think that has some similarities to organizing when we, when we know we're on the right track, that we get to push forward um, issues and solutions and policies and ideas that we can all um, come out from different experiences, but end up being really excited that they benefit us or they give us hope in a, a variety of ways. Yeah, it seems like what you learned in your your work is also sort of a premise of of left organizing, which is that human nature can be quite nice and socialistic when we're not, you know, molded into <laughs> to to monstrous behavior as as humans sometimes are. Yeah, it's a counterpoint to competition gets the goods. Um, (laughs) it is, it is that, uh, actually when we are solving for all of us, uh, then we all need to be at the table having a voice and cultivating our power. But that only happens when we're willing to say that, um, I, I don't win if you don't win. What brought you to DSA? I take it you joined around the same time that a lot of us did, which was around Trump's election, either sometime just before or after. Right. Um, that's that's exactly the, the time frame that I was on. And for me, 2016 was, was a really hard year, not just for that reason. It was a year where I watched a lot of my friends uh, from the housing community where I work um, kind of uh, feel the long-term effects of having been on the street um, I lost a lot of people to chronic health conditions that they couldn't recover from. Uh, I lost some folks to the carceral state and and some to mental health needs that were long term unaddressed because there's there are just some things that you don't the trauma is cumulative and there are some things that no person can actually get rid of in their lives they just keep carrying it and and eventually you have to put it down in one way or another and i had a lot of that in my life in 2016 it was a, a real year of grief and my response to all of that trauma Um, that collective trauma for a long time had been to try to just be a really good person and to meet needs where I found them. And when we were in the election 
as we began to see the results and the conversations developing from Trump's rise to power, the realization that solving for the harm that's already been done is not actually enough, that we have to go upstream of that and start to really root around in the system and address those system level issues. And we have to do that together. So election night for me looked like acknowledging that for myself, but then looking around the country and seeing so many other groups also acknowledging that, that if we're only solving for our own sort of bucket of existence, our own group, our own tribe, and if we're only solving for harm after it's already been um, heaped on us, then we're not getting far enough. And so turning to DSA was really turning toward the notion that power is only is only like an evil concept when it's used over us, that power held amongst ourselves has the capacity to do so much better and wanting to draw near to that and to spread that out and bring other people into that so that we could begin to address things at that systems level. Yeah, I think that's the way that a lot of us felt during the election was that this this cruelty that we'd already see, always seen around us in the world, this world governed by capitalism and a racist carceral state and a long-running war on immigrants, it was suddenly manifest in just this intensely grotesque way, almost to the point of caricature in the White House. Like pretty much every – all presidents have been pretty shitty, but but it was just so overwhelming the clarity of the choice between socialism and barbarism. Yeah, and I don't think that we were surprised, and I think that is honestly what was so disturbing about the situation was realizing that we already knew these sorts of powerful figureheads existed. We already knew that they were operating and making really important decisions and impacts in the world, and that what we were doing wasn't working as far as addressing that goes. What sort of work have you been involved with? with Austin DSA since since you joined before you became a candidate for Congress? I was really fortunate that um, when I joined Austin DSA, I got to meet some people who said the best way to learn to organize is to start organizing. And so I got thrown in um, to a policy initiative here in Austin that was also a statewide campaign to pursue um, earned paid sick time for all workers. And we joined a coalition in Austin with really, really amazing organizations and won that. Austin is the first city in the South to have the right to earn paid sick time. It's now held up in the court, but we also supported organizers in San Antonio and Dallas to pursue it as well. And they now have that at the city level. They've passed policy where workers can um, can have that right. And we coupled with uh, paid sick time our Medicare for All campaign, which started as sort of an educational campaign about the policy and then quickly shifted into a really targeted campaign um, to get a local representative for District 35, uh, Lloyd Doggett, to sign on to the House bill, which was would become H.R. 1384. 
That campaign took us about 18 months, and I learned so, so much in the process about what escalating escalating tactics looks like, what um, motivation looks like for an elected representative who you want to move and not replace, at least at the moment. And we ended up culminating that campaign by starting to post videos of people in his districts who were directly affected by a lack of access to healthcare. And that, I think, was sort of the pinnacle organizing of, of not just showing him those videos, but showing everyone and telling people across the district and across the state that if you are frightened of what's going to happen if you go to the doctor and also frightened of what's going to happen if you don't. You are not alone. You have not failed. Actually, this is a a problem for all of us and and it's going to take all of us to solve it. So that was a really wonderful campaign. Uh, And then we got- Just as an aside, that that testimonial aspect approach has really been one of the most brilliant parts of the Bernie campaign as well. That's right. I think that- it does, a, it does a couple of things. One, it puts power back into the hands of people who are experiencing directly the effects of the policies that we're talking about. It takes it out of the realm of the theoretical and it, it makes it super personal. And that, that is, um, that is power. Our using our voices and sharing our experiences is a form of organizing and, the, the other is that it's really hard for politicians who are operating sort of in a numbers world to argue with an individual who can say, actually, that didn't work for me and my family. That didn't work for my community. And then in Austin, we also got to support some really good work on um, holding our police department accountable um, through their union contract, uh, which has also caught on, especially in cities in the South. And I got to be part of something near and dear to my heart, which was um, an effort uh, at the city level to decriminalize behaviors associated with homelessness, which means to stop allowing the, t- the police to follow, harass, or ticket people for sleeping or laying down or sitting or panhandling, all of the things that folks who are experiencing homelessness here because our shelters are so constantly full and because there are a lot of barriers to housing, they have to do just to survive. And we we won all of those campaigns, certainly not without uh, some obstacles and some complications, but we ended up making progress in every single one of those areas and, and developing community in the process. Let's talk about the the campaign. Your primary opponent is Julie Oliver, who was the Democratic candidate in 2018 when she lost by nine points to the right-wing Republican incumbent, Roger Williams. Oliver argues that there are few differences with you on policy issues and says that she closed the gap significantly compared to past Democrats who had run in this heavily Republican district. How do you, I guess, or how are you going about highlighting differences in a race like this where you're not running against, you know, the most horrible blue dog Democrat, which is something that Jessica Cisneros doesn't have the, you know, the problem of given that uh, Cuellar is, you know, that was just he's a Republican. How do you how do you highlight the, the still significant differences? And then how do you beat her? Right. For the differences between me and Julie Oliver, there are two main categories that I talk about. And one is um, our theory of change, that I have never seen a 
grassroots policy issue get traction and win unless it is with coalition support that is intentionally putting power back into the hands of the community and taking it away from the corporations, the incredibly wealthy politicians, the lobbyists who are constantly in their ears. And so I spent the last several years of my life participating in those coalitions, and my intention in running for Congress is actually to continue to do that work. I tell people from organizations of a variety of sort of strengths and capacities all of the time, please, please use what we are doing, uh, going out and knocking on our goal is 100,000 doors to grow your campaigns, to grow your organizations, because I don't think that we're going to get Medicare for All or a Green New Deal unless we have a national platform and a local-based movement. Our intention is to always have one boot in the street, even if we get to have one boot in Congress. And so we, we have gone as far as to write an organizing platform, which is on our website, talks about how we're going to do that, how we want to double union density in this district, how we're going to dedicate a staffer to labor, how we are going to provide space, accessible space for independent organizations. Um, how exactly we're going to build the coalitions that are going to be necessary to not just win a Green New Deal, but implement it. Uh, and so that's something I'm really pl- proud of. And, and honestly, something that I felt like we had to say to um, clarify that we're not just running a campaign to win an office, we're running a campaign to win for the working class. And the other thing about about Julie and I is that While our policies on paper often sound pretty similar, my intention here is not to, like I said earlier, not to kind of address the harms of capitalism and competition and the ruthlessness that we see and that inevitably leads to people like Trump coming into power, but to root them out entirely. And, and I think that is best evidenced in, in our sort of different approaches to Medicare for all. We had a great debate the other day, sort of a forum space where people were asking about our healthcare plans. And I've been organizing, as I said, for Medicare for all for quite a long time now. And I, the DSA five demands on Medicare for all are, are my demands. And they're what I share at every door that I talk about, that it's all of us, that it's a single program, that it covers all of our bodies, that it's free at the point of service and that it provides a just transition for workers. That's our starting point. And when they asked Julie, who is now on board with Medicare for all, which she wasn't at the beginning of, uh, certainly at the beginning of last cycle and through the course of the campaign and, and arguably at the beginning of this cycle as well. She said that, um, the thing that had convinced her to get on board was Donald Trump. And if we are just recognizing sort of the, the harm and the potential ramifications of capitalism when we see it in that heightened a form, then we're not 
looking at how that started, how where that power actually came from, what the system is that that demands that kind of power, that kind of ruthlessness, that barbarism that you were talking about. So whether we're looking at housing and we're saying if this is a human right, we have to move competition out of it, or we're looking at the carceral state and saying that this is a method of taking uh, agency away from people and putting the establishing a lower class for the long term. Um, we are we're here to understand that the system doesn't work for the vast majority of us. It inevitably works for a very wealthy few, and I think she's more concerned that there are a very wealthy few who maybe need to be like reined in. This all sounds very familiar to those following or enmeshed in. The, the Bernie Warren debates, which which reminds me that I wanted to ask you, given that the Bernie primary is sucking up so much attention on the left and not without good reason, but but given that you're running a campaign for, for the House at the same time as this, this Bernie campaign is going on, how do you and people in Austin DSA think that leftists should go about concentrating on a lot of different things at once from races at the top of the ballot to you kind of halfway down the ballot, to people all the way down the ballot in city councils, and then also staying focused on on local organizing that's not electoral? This is a great question, and I've really enjoyed pursuing uh, with a lot of creativity and a lot of help how that looks for us here right now. And I certainly want to be careful to say that I don't know what's best for every chapter and every community, but I, I have some learned some things through this process. And for us, what it looks like at this point is we... Um, Canvas a whole lot, right? We want to hit a hundred thousand doors in this district before March third, wow. um, and that is that is our winning strategy. It is to go out and to talk to people directly, to have the long conversations. Fifteen minutes at a door is something that we are really excited about, rather than being like you need to shove the clipboard in the face much faster than that, um, because those people they're going to remember that conversation, and the point is. To, to actually move people, um, to, to make them feel part of something and then to have a more lasting understanding of what we're attempting to do here. So we're, we're doing these canvases and we're turning people out to put policy first. We try to have an initiative that we're centering in every canvas. We'll go talk about childcare for all. We'll talk about a Green New Deal. We'll talk about housing. And we're not just talking about what we're going to do at a federal level. We're talking about what's happening with all of those issues right now in the community that we're that we're knocking doors in. Um, district 25 happens to be an incredibly gerrymandered district. It's about five-hour drive from one end of it to the other. So we depend on local organizations and local leaders to educate us on what the situation on the ground looks like right now so we can be sure to meet people where they are and ask them the right questions. So we're policy forward always. And we're also really collaborative. Austin DSA um, endorsed uh, an amazing slate, um, of course, endorsed Bernie Sanders, and then I got endorsed in July. And we have also endorsed a county attorney and a district attorney race here in Travis County. And all of the candidates on that slate have commonality. And there are specific issue com commonalities, so we can go and talk about criminal justice at doors and really highlight our local candidates as well. 
But we can go knock on a door and talk about Bernie Sanders, and we can talk about local criminal criminal justice reforms, ending cash bail, decriminalizing sex work, decriminalizing marijuana, and these kinds of issues. And it's seamless because at the end of the day, we know every single one of these people is seeking to bring power out of the hands of corporations, out of Wall Street, out of those who make all of the decisions about our lives right now and put them back into the hands of people. And and it has become sort of a like rhetorical development for us to be able to say across the board on all of these levels, we're seeking to do the same work and your community's doing that work right now. So Part of it, I think, is getting out of a scarcity mentality and being able to say, please come organize with us, whether you're organizing on this day because it's your issue or because you're organizing for Bernie and we're also organizing for Bernie or because you're part of this campaign. All of those things to me uh, feel like we are pushing the movement forward. And that's not a detraction. That's a strength. I think that's how we ended up having 105 canvassers come out about two weeks ago. On a nuts and bolts level, how, how do you organize your canvas or organize people into it, train people on it, and deploy them out into the streets? How, do, how does it work both in a over time and on any given Saturday? Mm-hmm. When we started... I definitely went to a lot of local organizers in DSA and in other organizations that I've done coalition work with. And I was like, look, this is an uphill battle. Julie ran last time. The district is huge. It is a congressional race. All of these are enormous challenges for us. And I'm absolutely not going to do this if you're not with us 100%, uh, both from sort of an ideological standpoint and from a very practical standpoint. If you're not going to turn out and be part of this thing with us, then it's not going to happen. And so we've been dependent on that, um, at least to sort of seed the campaign and get it going. But what we've seen is that that trust, that um, that abundance mentality versus the scarcity or competition mentality has let us bring people into the coalition that drives this campaign. And whether people came for the first time and canvassed or did data entry or um, phone banked because they were part of an environmental justice group working on a Green New Deal and got started on that track or because they were initially attracted to the idea of a congressional race, what we ask them to do is find an area that they're comfortable in, grow in it, and then get somebody else to fill that spot with them to grow other organizers. So we've seen people who knocked their first door in September who now run canvases on their own. They can cut turf. They can do the follow-up text bank. They can make sure everything is cool in van. And that doesn't make me nervous at all. (laughs) That actually makes me really joyful and really excited because those folks, when this campaign is over, it's not like they're going to stop organizing. That's not a thing that we do. Once we understand that this is power building, I think people get really hooked on it. Of course, we want to take rest, but that's why we grow new leaders is so that people can step up when others step back. And we're seeing that every day. It, it is amazing. And it um, it brings me energy when a lot of things can be sort of like demanding and rigorous on the campaign trail, watching new organizers come in because 
we've said yes to them uh, and made it really low barrier, that is um, highly motivating. They're not going to stop organizing. That's not a thing that we do. I love that. Okay, let's talk about the general election. If you are the Democratic candidate, which hopefully you will be, how do you plan on on beating Williams? Because you have a tricky, very right-leaning district, at least by the numbers, because Texas congressional districts, as listeners may be aware, are extraordinarily gerrymandered. There are parts of five different congressional districts incorporate parts of Travis County, which is where Austin is located, which dilutes Austin's left-leaning voters into four Republican-leaning districts, including yours, the 25th district. And so Austin, according to a story I read from the Austin Chronicle, is the largest American city without a congressional district anchored within it. And I, I looked up the 25th district to see what it looked like online, and it's this totally absurd construction. It's shaped sort of like a lightning bolt. It's narrower down by Austin, and then it widens as it heads northward past Waco and towards Fort Worth. How do you win in that district and and beat Williams, who's this deeply right-wing car dealership owner who, who has weirdly, according to the Dallas Morning News, quote, developed the custom of asking almost every witness before the House Financial Services Committee to identify as either a capitalist or a socialist. Right. He is quite a character. <laughs> um, no kidding. He is a millionaire used car salesman who inherited <laughs> his dealerships from his father. That's his oh deal. God. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and he's one, he's one of the richest members of Congress, of course, of course. And he takes lots of money from people like people, quote unquote, um, institutions like Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs and Lockheed Martin. It's true. They've done a fantastic job of dividing up our communities so that we can't organize in, in unity and, and grow real power um, just geographically here in our congressional races. But the thing is, while we have a base in Austin, because this is where I live and this is where I've been organizing for a number of years, we know that we can't win this race just with Austin. It's not going to happen. So, like the numbers don't add up. And so we have taken what we understand about coalition building and applied it to the communities that are across this district. So when we go up to Burleson, which is the northernmost part of the district just south of Fort Worth, we are making sure that we're engaged with our union brothers and sisters and siblings there, learning first from them what the lay of the land is like, what they are working on, coming alongside of them in those fights. Organizing with groups like Unite Here is so amazing and so powerful because they have built so much trust in the community. And when I can build relationship and trust with them on this campaign, um, then we have we have a, a step up in our process of being able to reach and impact even more people. But the other thing is, in addition to relying on other organizers who have already done so much work and and laid such a good foundation, we're very human centric in the way that we talk about all of all of these policies, all of this work. We don't go out and say to folks in Lampasas or Colleen, look, we want you to be more left. The right is the problem. 
we want this to be a blue district. The red is the problem because they're not. That's not how people think about things. At least, you know, the people who don't have, you know, political brain <laughs> That's worms, right. like like us who think about <laughs> politics all the time, like for a living or otherwise. <laughs> That's right. Nobody considers themselves a red person. And and to say that this is a red district, um, I think really like takes the the fleshiness out of it. So we go and we talk about um, what does housing look like right here for you right now? Is it is it hard for folks to stay here and earn enough of an income to stay in the houses that they have put their roots down in? And the answer inevitably is, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to pay for healthcare. Yes, our our local hospital just shuttered or our local school just shuttered or my wages have been flat or I'm terrified. I am terrified that they're going to take away my pension. And so we meet people right there and we talk about it's an organizing conversation. What do you want? I want that security. I want connection to my community. I want my family to grow and thrive and feel safe and cared for. Why don't you have those things? And people, you know, it's a hard question because oftentimes we are told that we don't have those things because our neighbors do. But when we look around in most of these communities, especially our rural communities, our neighbors don't have those things either. And so we get the opportunity to say that the reason why we don't have enough, why us regular people don't have what we need just to get by is actually because Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Lockheed Martin are constantly in the ears of people like Roger Williams. And when we phrase it that way, when we don't say left or right, when we say top bottom, we're breaking through this boundary of, it's sort of like this perceived cultural boundary of you are not steeped enough in the learned experience of your own existence to make good choices for yourself. Actually, I think that at the end of the day, people know what they need. And I I have a lot of trust that when we say we want them to have that, we want them to have all that they need. And that I think there's a way forward towards that. People really move. And of course, right now in the primary, we're talking to mainly Democrats across the district. But I can't pass up an apartment complex and I can't pass up a community event. These are like the things that I love. And so we're knocking doors and sometimes not knowing uh, what's supposed to happen on the other side. And those are the best conversations. Uh, They're the things that grow us and our ability to communicate and to organize. And, And for me, that comes back to what I've learned in previous campaigns, like on the paid sick days. Uh, we were in North Austin, sort of a suburban area one day, and I knocked on a door with a Trump truck back out front. Um, and, and you're thinking as you walk up, like you gulp water, you're like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But you're going to, I mean, you knock it. And you still it was, knock. It it's on your like, list. You got to knock it. <laughs> crazy, gross, cold day. And a, a, a woman opened the door and she invited me in for coffee as she was making pancakes for her family. And she... She asked me what what we were working on, and I said, you know, we're we're working to get earned paid sick time for every person who works in Austin. And she just turned around. She like put her spatula down and turned around, and she said, "I had no idea that there were people in the world who didn't get 
time off that was paid when they're sick. I didn't know that that was a thing. Of course I'll sign. And it blew my mind because at this, in the same token, I had been organizing in fast food restaurants and at Burger King meeting so many people who would say, I didn't know there was such a thing as paid sick time. No one in my family has ever had that. And the difference is, of course, economic. And the difference is, of course, um, often related to you know, our family circumstances, our race, our gender, our background and education. But the difference in people's compassion and their willingness to say, I, I deserve good things and so does my neighbor is not a left-right issue. I think that we can move so many people when we center human needs and human values. Yeah, I was just canvassing for Bernie in in New Hampshire last weekend in a very MAGA heavy upper middle class planned suburb outside of Manchester. And it was tough. um, But it reminded me that the way we need to engage with people who disagree with us to be effective organizers, it's precisely the opposite of what effectively engaging with someone who disagrees with you on the internet looks like. (laughs) Like you don't want to own someone at the door. That's right. Never. Uh uh-uh. uh. You you're you want to stand next to them. Uh we at my job we do a ton of like trauma informed practices and de escalation practices and there's this thing that if someone is really triggered or really having a hard time, you don't wanna stand like squared up to them and look them in the eye and like lean into them. You wanna actually stand side by side with them. So you seeing the world the way that they see it. And that makes us feel like, I mean, we're, we're all humans. And, and for most of us, that makes us feel like we're on the same team, that we're looking out into the world and we're seeing the struggle together and we're going to like do something about it together rather than like, I'm going to win you right now. Well, Heidi Sloan, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Heidi Sloan is a DSA organizer running for Congress in Texas's 25th Congressional District. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the workers must put up their own candidates in order to preserve their independence. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people, your friends, loved ones, strangers, whoever, about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a big help. (laughs) 